This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. And good afternoon. Welcome to the program. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain on today's edition of the program. Thank you so much for tuning in. And on today's show, we have Bridget Clark. She is the advocacy advocacy coordinator with the St. John's Status of Women Council. Bridget joins me on the line now. Bridget, good afternoon. Hi, thank you for having us. Well, thank you so much for taking some time out uh, to come on the program today. And there's a lot to discuss, but I want to start with pay equity because the St. John's Status of Women Council released a report earlier this week um, outlining some of the reasons why the province should be moving towards pay equity legislation. But before I get into some of the specifics of what was found in that report, um, yesterday during a scrum with, with the Premier, uh, in response to questions about your report, he indicated that some form of pay equity legislation is coming this fall. Uh, details are scanty, but he says that uh, it, they hope that it will be some progressive legislation. Uh, what are your initial thoughts on uh, what the Premier had to say there? Yeah, we were um, interested to hear that response. Um, you know, we've heard details kind of alluding to work that's been happening on pay equity at a provincial level for many years now. So um, it was interesting timing, and ultimately it just leaves us with more questions that we're eager to hear more about. Um, you know, we're looking to know kind of what that work looks like from the provincial level, what um, has informed them up to this date, who is involved in that kind of consultation process, and ultimately we want to know more details about what that legislation could look like and kind of more of a real sense of timeline. Um, like I said, we can um, talk more about it in detail, but ultimately the things that we're calling on the province at this point for is um, really good legislation that will work for um, people in our province. So for us, that means that it has to be really wide-reaching, that it will cover both public and private sector workers, um, and that perhaps most importantly, there is well-resourced oversight bodies like we see in other provinces to make sure that that legislation is effective. Oversight bodies are really critical to um, pay equity legislation because what it means is it builds in um, different levels of accountability for both government and private employers to make sure that they're holding up um, their end of the bargain with legislation like this. And now I just want to circle back to something you said earlier. So the St. John Status of Women Council hasn't been part of any consultations thus far? Well, we met with the wage department last week to share with them our work. Um, by wage, I mean women and gender equality, um, which is one of the departments that's responsible for um, working on the Interdepartmental Committee on Pay Equity. Um, so we met with them last week to share our work with them, and um, we're eager to be active participants in whatever their consultation could look like going forward. We also wrote this report with really valuable insight from the Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of of labor with the Workers Action Network, Newfoundland and Labrador, and with PANSAL, which is the Provincial Action Network for the Status of Women. And what that is, is um, the collective body of status of women councils across Newfoundland and Labrador. So um, 
collectively, the kind of group of authors who produce this report um, are all, I would say, really important players in um, having some meaningful input and engagement to the development of this kind of legislation, plus uh, certainly other people across the province as well. I think engaging directly with workers um, and employers as well would be valuable to make sure that um, everybody's informed, everybody's on board, and that it's legislation that really works in our province. Uh, You know, we're not asking for cookie-cutter legislation that gets kind of a government stamp of approval, and then there are no levels of accountability or oversight. We're We're looking for something that has really meaningful outcomes. So now in terms of the legislation, and you said that you know things are kind of fluid and you don't want a cookie-cutter uh, piece of legislation, but what are some of the key elements that you think need to be included with this? Right. So um, like I said a moment ago, what we see based on other provinces that have enacted, enacted legislation over the last number of decades, what is um, considered to be really decent legislation is um, wide-reaching in the sense that it covers both public sector and private sector workers. Um, So government is often the employer of public sector workers, but private sector ranges from a whole lot um, of employers in the province. And oftentimes when we think about private, we think about really um, people who might be in positions that are um, being paid really well or kind of in really lucrative industries like oil and gas or tech. But we have to remember that private also includes things like retail. It includes customer service. It includes early childhood education. It includes all kinds of care work that has been traditionally and historically gendered and undervalued. So we want to make sure that um, legislation like this will have the impact on people who need it the most. Um, And again, like I said, what's absolutely critical from our perspective is that there are well-resourced oversight bodies like we see in other provinces to make sure that um, legislation isn't just sitting idle, but that there are actually um, scheduled plans, classifications, processes, and adjustments that happen with government and with employers to make sure that legislation is actually being put into action and being put to use. So now let's talk a little bit about the report that was released on Monday. Uh, What are some of the key findings that uh, you found? Yeah, so really our goal with this report was um, to contribute to kind of conversation that we know has been happening for years in the province, um, and again, more recently in the last little while in the House of Assembly about kind of the state of pay equity in Newfoundland and Labrador. So we wanted to dig into some questions that we had that we know our community and people in the province have, um, and that was kind of around what is pay equity, um, what are the connections to the gender wage gap, but also what's the difference between pay equity and the gender wage gap because too often they're conflated. Um, What does legislation look like this in other places? What are the kind of connections and, I guess, measures we can look at around um, where pay equity legislation exists and um, what have the outcomes been in other places? And what are the things that we really needed to include here in our province And we also really took it as an opportunity to lean on um, Canadian and international experts on um, social and economic equity and well-being to really hear from what they're saying. So, you know, we looked at 
that. Um, what does the Canadian Labour Congress call on for legislation like this? What about the Supreme Court of Canada? There's been some really interesting rulings on pay equity in Canada. Um, what about Oxfam Canada? What about um, the Canadian Women's Foundation um, to really kind of lean on those voices of expertise? Quite a, a, a lot of work then uh, needing to go into this. Um, what You just outlined some of it there, but what do we know about uh, the wage gap in Newfoundland and Labrador and sort of how prevalent it is in our society right now? Yeah. Um, so I will start by just kind of differentiating the two, if that's okay. So when we talk about pay equity, um, it's really important that we have a clear understanding of what that means. So pay equity is equal pay for work of equal value with any given employer, employer or in an industry. So that can mean, um, but doesn't exclusively mean equal pay for equal uh, work. And by equal work, I mean equal roles. It can also mean equal pay for roles of equal value. Um, so that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be people who are in the exact same roles, but they're roles that are valued equally or that they should be valued equally based on what they're contributing, what responsibility they have, what their conditions of work are, that kind of thing. Um, and really pay equity is about addressing how work has been um, really gendered and also undervalued, how some kind of work has been gendered and undervalued throughout colonial history. And when we're talking about the wage gap, the wage gap refers to difference in average incomes or earnings between groups of people. And the gender wage gap is often what we're talking about when we talk about the wage gap because of the very real um, and vast differences between average earnings between groups of men and women. But it is important to think critically and carefully when we're having conversations about the wage gap because too often when we um, kind of look at the gender wage gap at face value, it is most representative of average earnings of white women. But actually what we know to be true is that the widest wage gaps are consistently experienced by women who are black, who are indigenous, who are racialized, who are immigrants, um, and also by people living with disabilities and who are queer and trans. And it's also important to recognize when we're talking about the gender wage gap is that there are a number of different ways to measure it and calculate it. And you might see numbers shift um, based on data that's available or the way that you go about measuring it. So it is kind of a nuanced conversation, but with all of that in mind, no matter how you measure it, Newfoundland and Labrador is home to one of Canada's largest gender pay gaps, and that's also in line with what we found in looking at what provinces do and don't have enacted pay equity legislation. So the trend is very consistent across Canada that where there is proactive pay equity legislation, there are lower gender wage gaps. We're speaking with Bridget Clark on today's edition of On Target. She is the advocacy coordinator with the St. John Status of Women Council. we got to take a quick break right now on today's program, but we're going to continue this conversation about pay equity, and we're also going to get into some other topics when we come back. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain on today's episode of On Target. Bridget Clark is my guest today. Uh, she's with the status of St. John's Status of Women Council. She's advocacy coordinator there. And Bridget, just before the break, uh, in talking about the gender wage gap and the report that uh, was released earlier this week, uh, you, you mentioned... 
in one of the last uh, questions that you answered that uh, you thought it was important to sort of explain some of the differences uh, between uh, e equity and, and the wage gap. And do you find that part of the problem uh, in addressing the wage gap is maybe the fact that a lot of people just don't understand really what it is? That's possible. And it's fair because, like I said, it is kind of a nuanced um conversation to be had about it. And so that's really par partly what our aim was in this report, is we wanted to make this kind of information um, as accessible as possible. Um, and within a local context, you know, we wanted to have that kind of conversation within Newfoundland and Labrador um, to talk about issues that affect all of us. And sometimes both the language and also kind of hunting down information like this can be really tricky, but it's important that we all can access it if we want to, because like I said, it affects all of us. And sometimes we think about, oh, like proactive pay equity legislation. What does that even mean? Who is it for? Who does it impact? It's got nothing to do with me. Why would I care about it? But that's just not true. You know, like I said, proactive pay equity legislation that's decent and the kind that we are looking for from our province is um, legislation that will cover private sector employees, public sector workers, um, and ultimately that's a lot of working people in our province. We currently have in Newfoundland and Labrador and across the country the Federal Pay Equity Act, which covers um, federally regulated workers. But for people who are not federally regulated, this kind of legislation um, could cover the vast majority of other working people. We do recognize that there are um, some really important limits to talk about when we're looking at this kind of le legislation, and that includes people who are doing um, unpaid work or who are not doing paid work, because we know a lot of work that happens is simply not paid, or if you are being paid, you might not be um, defined or recognized as an employee in legislation like that. So that can include people who are self-employed Employed. Um, it also includes industries that remain criminalized, like people who are doing sex work. So it's important to talk about the limits, but also keeping in mind that when we're looking at legislation like this, it can, in fact, impact so many of us, um, you know, family members, people we love, and our communities at large. One more uh, question on the pay equity legislation, then we'll move on to a couple of different topics. But uh, it has been noted that this is a conversation around pay equity legislation that has been happening in Newfoundland and Labrador for decades. Um, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on what do you make of the timeline and that has taken so long for us to get to this point that we are at here today. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, there's really no good reason. There is no good excuse for why this does not exist here and why it hasn't been um, written, enacted, and um overseen in a way that's been effective. Um, it's, you know, really ultimately been embarrassing that we are one of the only provinces in the country and the only province in Atlantic Canada without a legislation like this. Um, and a couple of reasons that we do unpack in the report um, are kind of what there has been pushback on in the past because we thought we know what the conversations have been had. Um, so let's address them, you know, at face value. So one of the pushback, pieces of pushback that I think we've all heard is like, oh, this is going to cost so much. This is going to be so much money. Our government doesn't have this money. We can't afford it. So we dug into that a little bit. 
and first of all, the way we frame that conversation is that pay equity is a human right in Canada, point blank. So anytime we're weighing the costs and benefits of whether or not our human rights are upheld, we really see that as a destructive practice and not one that really has much of a leg to stand on. But because we hear cost being thrown around as kind of um, maybe why this hasn't happened yet, like you said, in the province, we did look a little bit closer. Um, and we looked at Ontario and their pay equity commission, which is um, in terms of population and number of employers, the biggest in the country. So I want to make it really clear that when we're looking at their budget, it really is like apples and oranges because the budget for us um, would be a lot smaller than this. But Ontario estimates that a budget to oversee um, legislation like this on a yearly basis is just shy of $7 million. And that's not a small um, price tag. We know that to be true. But I think it's relevant to look at what our provincial budget is this year in 2022. So we did. And you look at other budget lines that are significantly more than that is, um, for example, the government this year spent $148 million on policing services and more than $180 million on business development and support for the oil and gas industry. So that's 2022 in Newfoundland and Labrador. And like I said, I want to be clear that when we're looking at Ontario, it is considering, um, it's like comparing apples and oranges. But, but ultimately, the point we're trying to get at is that our government has money to spend and has been you know, really hemorrhaging money where they see it as being valuable and where they see it as being worth spending. So there's no good reason for um, human rights to not have been legislated, but also they're made um, kind of oversight avenues and processes to make sure that that's actually being upheld. What, on a personal level for you, what would it mean to see this legislation enacted here? Well, I think it would... um, be one meaningful step of many things that we advocate for at a provincial level for um, the socioeconomic well-being of women and marginalized people in our provinces. I want to make it clear that that is pay equity legislation is is not the only thing that we're asking for, but it is one thing that we know is absolutely critical. Um, we know that we also need things like um, our minimum wage to be a living wage. We know we need paid sick leave for everybody who's working in the province. We know we need um, more access to affordable child care with um, increased regulated spaces and also where um, people working in those spaces are being paid well. We also know that pay is not the only important factor in terms of work. We need to look at conditions of work that exist above and beyond pay, but ultimately enacting this legislation would be one really meaningful step towards um, socioeconomic well-being. And personally, I think um, I can't help but think about, um, you know, Jerry Rogers, who introduced this as a private motion in 2017 on International Women's Day. I can't help but think about people like Jerry and others who have been pioneers pushing for this um, long before I have and and even people before them. Um, I can't help but think about, um, you know, union leaders and activists who have been calling on this for so long. So um, personally, I think it would be um, really significant in that way. 
My guest on On Target today is Bridget Clark. She is the advocacy coordinator with the St. John's Status of Women Council. And we have we are up against another break here on the program, but uh, we are going to switch gears a little bit when we come back on On Target. I want to talk about uh, topics of domestic violence. Uh, we want to talk about touch on uh, abortion rights, for example, on the program. So lots more to unpack, and we're going to do that coming up after the break. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan filling in for Linda Swain on today's edition of On Target. Bridget Clark is my guest today, advocacy coordinator with the St. John's Status of Women Council. And now, Bridget, we're going to switch gears a little bit on, on uh, the program now today because I want to talk about some of the other uh, things that are in the purview of the St. John's Status of Women Council. And one of those things uh, would be domestic violence. Uh, the figure that I saw that uh, was in this province is that 79% of domestic violence women or domestic violence victims, pardon me, are female. Um, How do you think we're doing right now on addressing and reducing things such as intimate partner violence? Uh, Yeah, it's a really important question and and an important conversation to be having um, at any point in time. But I I can't help but think in this context of this conversation is that um, some of us might feel in some ways like uh, we might be out of the woods in terms of COVID-19. And I know that that's not a real experience for so many people. But in the context of talking about domestic violence, there are very real impacts that the pandemic has had, um, which have only exacerbated realities that have existed for so long before COVID-19. And I think we're going to see the way that that is unraveling um, and how experiences of gender-based violence and domestic violence um, continue to um, ultimately get worse in the years to come. Um, I think it's important, too, to contextualize what what, what we mean when we're talking about domestic violence. So we use um, the term gender-based violence as kind of an umbrella term. And ultimately, that means the harm people experience when they are victimized in relation to or because of their gender identity. Um, So that can mean a whole lot of people. And in Newfoundland and Labrador, most people who experience violence, like you said a minute ago, are women. And that includes and especially means trans women. Um, We know that the rates of violence experienced by trans women are actually higher than rates of violence experienced by cisgender women. And most people who experience violence actually experience it in their own homes. Gender-based violence um, then can include domestic violence, which is exactly um, like what I said when it's happening in your home. And that can happen with intimate partners. Um, It can happen with family members. Um, It can also happen in our systems and institutions. And what you might hear people refer to that is state-based violence. Um, So Again, when we're thinking about what kind of experiences that encompasses, it's a whole lot of people and a whole lot of experiences. Um, It can include abuse that's physical, sexual, psychological, cultural, um, financial, emotional, um, and other kinds of abuse and harassment. Um, So when we talk about domestic violence, 
you know, with both families and intimate partners. Um, violence is not exclusive to being experienced by people who are living together. Um, and we know that specifically with domestic violence, it often continues. And in fact, the risk of harm can actually get even bigger after relationships have ended. So those are the kinds of things that um, we know to be true based on our own local research, but also based on what we hear about every single day from people who call us, um, who access our programs, and who um, we're really fortunate to know and who share a lot of their lives with us. Are there enough, are there enough uh, supports in place for women or anyone who's experiencing uh, such violence to get out of those situations? That's uh, a big question to unpack, too. I mean, um, the, short, the, the, the short answer to that question is no, um, but what we know um, as being really essential to um, being able to make decisions that work for people who have experienced violence, those kinds of decisions are very individual. Um, there's nothing that anybody can um, say or, or do or prescribe um, that is any more important than what the individual experiencing violence um, needs to do. But ultimately what we see our role um, in all of our programs and our work at the Status of Women's Council is to um, create safety in the spaces that we offer here for people who need them. Um, and also to, you know, create spaces of safety where people can both um, kind of unpack and think through and access support and work towards healing for what they're going through, but also where they um, are maybe given options that they haven't been given before, options to make decisions that work for them. And so often when we're talking about decisions and options, that also comes with resources. So that's the big thing, I think. That's the kind of root of your question, I think, is um, do people have enough services? So much of the time, what people need are resources, and what that can look like is safe, accessible, affordable housing. It can mean um, financial resources, you know, um, making decisions and having options to be able to either leave a relationship or make decisions that um, kind of reduce the harm that you're experiencing so often has to do with financial resources. It often has, thing, has things to do with, um, you know, having access to childcare or access to transportation or access to things like a cell phone. Um, so we know that poverty is sexist and has a really big impact on people's experiences of violence. Um, so when we look at people who are experiencing poverty and people who are experiencing violence, no, there's, there's just not enough resources right now for people who need them. Do you think the public conversation around domestic violence has changed in recent years? Like, I, I can remember now, like, you see ads uh, running on TV or on the radio for uh, domestic violence helplines. And I, I personally, I can't remember hearing those 10 or 15 years ago. So do you think that we're making progress in, in at least changing the way the conversation is presented in public? I, I think that that's a really... Um good question. I think that's a good conversation to have. And I also think that that's something um, that's kind of like trickier to measure, but really important to think about in terms of culture, right? Um, and it's interesting that you ask that because it kind of leads leads into really well something else that I wanted to talk about, which is um, a new e-course that the organization has produced called Empowering Them. Um, you might have heard about it. And in fact, that might be even some of the ads that you're, <laughs> that you're referring to. Um, 
and Empowering Them is an e-course that is really about bringing the realities of gender-based violence out from behind closed doors, like you said, and into the world. It's by, about leveraging the expertise of people who have experienced gender-based violence to inform how we all take this on and kind of shoulder the crisis together. Um, it's really important that when we're talking about both domestic violence and gender-based violence overall is that we're bringing it out into the community because it is a community issue. It deeply impacts all of us, both directly and indirectly, and it's got really widespread ripple effects that we have probably all seen and felt in our own lives. You know, gender-based violence is a social crisis. It's a healthcare crisis. Um, it's in many ways an economic crisis, and our collective responsibility, we really believe, is to to address it collectively. Um, we want to be able to prevent violence from happening when we can and also allow spaces for people to heal from that. So if you're interested in um, learning more about really basic life skills, about how to maybe identify violence that's happening or how to respond if you see it or when someone tells you that they're experiencing it, Empowering Them is the tool for you. We built it for people who are 14 and over, um, so it's accessible for a lot of youth. Um, it's free. It's online. It takes about 90 minutes. You can do it yourself and at your own pace. Um, it's a really great resource for schools. It's a really great resource for workplaces, especially if you're looking for some free professional development to add to your resume. So um, thinking about domestic violence and gender-based violence as a community issue, bringing it out from behind closed doors, really addressing it. Um, as a community and, and really taking responsibility for what role we can play in making sure people have access to safety. Um, if you're interested in any of those things, um, empowering them is um, really a great tool for you and it's available uh, online at empoweringthem.ca or on our website directly. Really important resource uh, and, and great, some great information to get out there. Bridget, we're up against our final break of the day, but I do want to continue this conversation and get into a little bit more of that education piece that we were talking about uh, when we come back after this break. Thanks. You're busy, but you'll never be uninformed. Get up to date on the way home. The Drive on your VOCM. And welcome back to the program. Richard Duggan in with you today. Bridget Clark is my guest. She is the advocacy coordinator with the St. John Status of Women Council. And Bridget, before the break, we were talking about uh, rates of domestic violence. And you mentioned uh, that great program that uh, the Status of Women Council has uh, that people can access. And I, I want to touch on the education bit for a little bit because you said that that program is... Um, or was designed for people 14 years of age and older. How important is it to get the message out about domestic violence at a young age? Because I think to a comment that I made earlier about how I don't remember seeing ads uh, about getting help for domestic violence. Similarly, when I was in school, in junior high and high school, again, domestic violence and, and intimate partner violence wasn't something that was really talked about a whole lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely um, critical to be having conversations about safety, um, about consent, and about 
choice um, and support from really early ages. I'm not a parent, but I know lots of people who are and probably lots of people who are listening are. And parents know best of all that um, it's the responsibility of adults around kids to help inform them and guide them about what safety and support can look like. And we know that people... um, who are 14, who are 15, who are 16, and even younger than that, know when something's not right. So ultimately, we built this tool, like I said before, as really um, a life skill tool and learning opportunity to be able to help give people um, skills that they need to, to be able to navigate life and to address things when they might come up. And we really do see that as our collective responsibility to uphold. You know, as adults, it's our responsibility to develop those skills for ourselves and also to share them with people who are youth who um, might need them and and carry that responsibility to be able to um, keep them safe as well. So really this e-course came from, um, you know, women telling us, I know what it's like not to feel safe or to feel comfortable, um, like no one else knows what's going on or can see the pain that you're in. Or it's also come from people who would call us or ask us, like, I think someone in my life could be experiencing violence. What do I do? Or I'm afraid to intervene or it's none of my business. Um, And we know that people who are um, teens who might be navigating relationships, but also even people younger than that um, might be having some of those thoughts or might be around some of those experiences as well. So it really is about like um, building community capacity to keep ourselves and keep each other safe and and really skill building and um, taking ownership for that responsibility that we all have. Very important point to make there, Bridget. And uh, I do want to switch uh, topics one more time now. The cost of living uh, seems to be dominating all discussions right now. Uh, It's affecting all corners of life. What's the center seeing in terms of how this is affecting women and and the people that you serve? Yeah, well... you know, this kind of is a bit of a segue, actually, from what we were talking about in terms of um, responsibility to keep ourselves and each other safe. And, and really, the cost of living is having an impact on that as well, you know, and it, it really ties into what we were talking about around resources is that for people to be safe, for people to make decisions that work for them, um, to keep themselves well, that comes down to resources. Um, so, what we're seeing, uh, and I'm sure many people who are listening can relate to this, is that there is a housing crisis happening in St. John's. We, uh, and I, I, I'm sure many people listening would, would say this too, is that we saw this housing crisis um, happening even before COVID um, and even throughout COVID. And what we know is that there's really not enough safe, accessible, and affordable housing um, in the city. And one of our programs is Marguerite's Place Supportive Housing, which is available for um, women and non-binary people who are 30 and over who live without dependents in their care. And what they can access through our housing program is... um, supportive housing where they have um, independent units but kind of in a community setting and with support staff here around the clock to offer the kind of individual support that some people might need. Um, And what we know based on that program is that there's enormous demand for more supportive housing um, because sometimes people need more built-in supports, more affordable housing, um, and more security in terms of what kind of safety this this program and this building can offer. So that's certainly a big conversation that I know so many of us are having right now in terms of cost of living. The other big one is food insecurity. 
We know that people accessing food is um, also a crisis that people are experiencing right now, and that's got to do with cost, it's got to do with access, um, and it's got to do with people who are living in poverty. And it is all connected to people who uh, really, to kind of circle back to the first conversation we were having around pay equity, it's got to do with people who um, are being underpaid, who are not making a living wage, or who are not being paid equitably. So again, to make kind of decisions that work for you, to make yourself safe, to keep yourself and your family safe, um, and that includes housing, that includes food, um, really having access to resources, and so often that means um, access to income or other benefits that are adequate to be able to meet your basic needs is is really critical, and it's something that we see so many um, people struggling with right now. I want to go back to the uh, the housing crunch uh, that you were talking about before, and, and uh, that sort of ties into the conversation that we were having about uh, domestic violence as well. Do you feel that the wait times and the, the difficulty that people are having right now in trying to find apartments pose a concern in terms of women getting out of, vo- you know, potentially volatile situations? Absolutely, yeah. So we we do everything, um, including operating our housing programming from a housing first approach. And that means that people need access to housing um, above all. It's kind of like a basic standard to be able to, um, you know, stay safe or to become safe, um, to be able to meet other basic needs that housing has to come first. And too often we know that um, lack of access to safe and affordable housing means that people will continue to stay in um, unsafe relationships or spaces. So you're absolutely right on by saying that um, domestic violence is a housing issue and housing uh, issues and the crisis that we're all experiencing and seeing is also affecting people who are uh, living through violence right now in our city. Now, Bridget, we only have about a couple of minutes left here on the program, but uh, any final thoughts on, on anything that we've been talking about today or anything about the uh, the operations of the Status of Women's Center that you'd like to get out there? Um, another thing that I would love to just share about is our um, counseling program. I also just want to recognize that some of the topics that we've talked about together on the show today um, might be challenging to think about or to hear about, and I really recognize that all of our lived experiences kind of show up with us everywhere we go. So if there's anything um, that you are struggling with or that you think someone you know might be struggling with, we are here for you. We are here to talk through it. You can call the center Monday through Friday, 830 to 430 at 753-0220. But if you're listening and thinking, you know, I might need a little bit more support um, than just a check-in, we do have um, a drop-in counseling program called Right Here, Right Now. It's a counseling program that provides single session therapy to women and non-binary people who are 18 and over in the St. John's area. And that happens um, every week, Tuesdays and Wednesdays. So it is happening today between 12 and 5.30 p.m. We also have evening appointments available and you don't have to make an appointment. You don't need a referral. All of our programs are free. You can come by our building at 170 Cash and Avenue Extension or call us on the phone, like I said, at 753-0220. And you can expect an hour-long session with um, one of our really wonderful feminist and trauma-informed counselors. We see people on a first-come, first-served basis um, and really work to accommodate everyone who 
shows up. You can talk about anything that's going on for you. Um, so if you want to learn more about our counseling program, about other programs that the council operates, if you want to read the report on pay equity or take the Empowering Them e-course, that can all be found on our website, um, which is sjwomencenter.ca. Bridget Clark, thank you so much for your time on today's edition of the program. We are all out of time, but uh, some really important conversations there. So thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. I appreciate it. Excellent. That was Bridget Clark, Advocacy Coordinator with the St. John's Status of Women Council. That's all the time that we have for you on today's edition of the program. Thank you so much for tuning in. We'll talk soon. Bye for now.